to view. And this third Sunday in Advent for us is uh, scheduled with the birthday breakfast for Jesus in mind that we so enjoyed last week. And we want to again thank everybody that was a part of that time of celebration. It's really been a blessing to just savor um, good fellowship together in this time. And as we come to the third candle of Advent, I always like to see this together time as a focus for us to remember the timeless truths that we know in the nativity of Jesus and yet that bring us back to a place of realization that in every time that we gather as the people of God, we come to it anew, we come to it afresh. And we began the first Sunday of Advent to consider the prophetic hope, the glory and the magnitude of God's intent through the prophets. And that prophetic vision is embedded in every aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For as the writer of the first gospel in our New Testaments often referred to each of those prophecies as the point of departure that it might be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And then when we looked at the angel's candle, we considered the vast distance across time and space that God had prepared in sending his only begotten son to the world. And today, as we consider the shepherd's candle, I invite you to again remember today that the Lord is our shepherd. And when we think about this choice of these common workers, these workers upon the hillsides of Bethlehem, the ones not to whom the religious authorities would have turned for any kind of spiritual insight, but just the hard-working, laboring shepherds, that God Almighty in his sovereign power chose them to be the audience of that great angelic choir. So hear together the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were terrified. But the angels said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Think for a moment about the night of a shepherd on those hillsides near Bethlehem. Watching over the flock was essential to keeping predators away and being sure no sheep wandered off the rocky cliffs. Their work had natural and spiritual significance in the time of Christ's birth. Wool derived from the shearing of the sheep was used to make clothes. Healthy sheep were also crucial for the temple sacrificial system. These Bethlehem shepherds supplied the temple authorities with lambs to be sold to worshipers who needed a living sacrifice for their offerings to God. And yet, as important as these animals were to the priesthood, shepherds were not accorded much respect. They never would have been chosen for a spiritual mission or for holy tasks in Jerusalem's temple. They would have been completely overlooked. To the chief priests and rulers of the people, a shepherd was a nobody. The very idea that God's angels would send common shepherds to the Messiah's cradle to be the first outside of the family of Mary and Joseph, the first to see and to worship and adore the Christ child is awe-inspiring. Yet that is exactly what happened. Angels illuminated the night sky, filling the hearts of shepherds with fear as they covered their eyes in awesome wonder. And then came those majestic words, Fear not, 
followed by the most joyous news human ears have ever heard. Today, in the city of David, the Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Like these shepherds, we've each been given common tasks in life. None of us can claim a right to the holy things in ourselves. There are, there are doors into God's realm that we cannot open unless God steps in. In Christmas, God has indeed stepped in and turned human limitations inside out. Suddenly, we see that news of Christ's birth is a mighty door opener. Angels alert us through the reality of Advent to his living presence. We, together today, we can join the eager shepherds in going to seek him, to see his dwelling place, and then to bow in honor and reverence at the cradle of the king. So I invite you today in our hearts, in this humble dwelling, in a place nondescript that would easily be overlooked, to realize the significance of the Lord's calling, the magnitude of his grace expressed through angelic antiphonal choirs is just as real and vivid and alive for us. Let's pray together. O oh Lord God, with amazement, we stand alongside these shepherds. As angels fill their night sky with glorious news, may your light burst upon this place, this congregation, and all of our hearts and our homes. Open our eyes to see your royal majesty in such an unlikely place. Take us to the manger king with grateful songs of praise. We come today and we gather this Thursday night for candlelight to celebrate your birth. For you alone are worthy of our praise. Send us as you sent those shepherds to bring the news of your birth and the power of your kingdom to others. In the mighty name of our Messiah, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today, our, our kids' class for Explorers and Pathfinders continuing their experience. And we're so grateful for Miss Marcia. Excellent teaching that takes place. And as we often say, I've often said through the years when small classes five or six or less even kids in a class at a certain time, that's the only first grade encounter in that teaching session that that child will ever have. That's the only third grade or fifth grade or seventh grade. That's that child's only encounter. That's their opportunity. And we want to cherish and value that. And, and one of my joys in this congregation is that um, challenged as we are by the, the, the situations that we all contend with in life, that God uses life in the local church to help model a greater principle. Even when things in your life don't look sparkling and ideal and, and, and dressed up and fixed and polished exactly like you would like it, that the mighty infusion of the grace of God in your life is like, I think of it sometimes like oxygen coming into a place where you felt claustrophobic. I read a, an event um, that occurred about 1989 that was highly publicized at the time, long forgotten now, but um, there was a gathering of experts on marine life that had been tracking the movements of some whales, some giant whales that had, had moved in different parts of the ocean near Seattle, Washington, then up the seaboard, up the Canadian uh, coast in an unexpected track. And one of them they had tracked with electronic devices had gotten way off course and ended up trapped in the Arctic region up in off the coast of Alaska under great vast sections of ice. And as they realized the plight that this whale was in, there was a lot of publicity uh, at that time to try to find a way to save this whale and uh, went on into great expense with, with uh, equipment shipped in to try to get to where that whale might be. And as they tracked it, um, some of the marine biologists had a theory that if they could cut 
holes in the ice near where that um, well would come, that it would be attracted to that hole and that it would come up for air. And uh, that went on for some period of time, and, and they, they tried it, and they never really found that particular whale. But it made me think about the fact that, in a way, worship is that way, that God cuts great holes of, of access in the ice under which we live so that we can come up for air. We can get oxygen. We can fill our lungs with the oxygen of God's grace and he offers that to us freely. And unlike the whale trackers, God's grace is always successful. Now, I'd like to ask you to open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9 and to consider with me today. Oh, yes, we'll take a moment to transition to that. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. And thank you, each of you, for your... Uh, your loving care and support of others um, in the family of God. Um, as Justin referenced a few minutes ago, we're so grateful that we can be joined together. We can be among those who pray one for another expectantly because God's oxygen of grace is available to us and he doesn't have to cut holes in the ice to get to us. And I, I want to invite you to think in Isaiah chapter 9 to return to a section that we looked at the background for in uh, two prior Sundays. And, and today, what I would like to say as I begin about the infinitely glorious incarnation of Jesus is that this to me, for any preacher and certainly for any worshiper, is standing on holy ground. When we look into Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to take a little time today to see why there is such a, an astonishing contrast in this chapter between the global crisis that was real in the days of Isaiah and spans the centuries until our time, though the personalities and the circumstances differ, the plight of human need for a deliverance that can only come from God is so crystal clear. And you might think first, as you note from the screen here, there are two passages that are pivotal and that are a part of the overall expression of this truth that we'll be looking at. Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7 is the heart of it. And then, of course, the appearance of the angel Gabriel to Mary in Nazareth when Mary learned the astonishing fact that God had chosen this humble virgin to be the mother of the eternal only begotten Son of God, that God Almighty incarnate into humanity would begin that earthly sojourn as an infinitesimally tiny embryo in the womb of a virgin. And in Luke 1, verse 26, when the angel came to Mary to give her that news, and you see it in your own Bible, turn to that part right now in Luke chapter 1, and notice that when Mary responded to the angel first out of that um, odd awareness that something unprecedented, something unfathomable, something indescribably glorious was happening to her in a way that she had no mental or personal experiential categories to frame she was literally the recipient of that, uh, the cutting of the ice from heaven, bringing the oxygen of grace into a trapped and doomed world. And in, I, in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, as Mary's initial response to the angel is recorded there, we read that having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice! Highly favored one, 
the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Now, first realize that this word, not often used in common everyday language, the word incarnation, is a word that in one single word compresses a vast amount of eternal truth. And within this word incarnation, our English word, we, we compress the, the reality that is impossible for any human tongue to do justice to even the greatest artists and the greatest musicians and composers in history that have, have approached the topic of the incarnation, have, have done great things in the glory of God, but never can fully explain the magnitude of this great miracle. And Mary is, is literally absorbing the impact of this when she hears those words, blessed are you among women. And Mary's response in verse 34 is not only personal for her experience, but can also be applied to the plight that all of us are in when we realize God Almighty wants to do something for us that is far beyond any human capacity to duplicate. Religious efforts, religious works, struggles in the human experience are often aimed at trying to uh, ascend to a place of experiencing God, and yet ultimately they all fail because the very essence of grace in the Bible is that God has intersected our world, that God has broken into our ice, that God has come to where we are and dwelt among us to literally become one of us. So Mary's question in Luke 1.34 is relevant for us as we think of the infinitely glorious incarnation. Mary's response is to the angel, how can this be? Since I do not know a man. Here is, here is that uh, wondrous contrast between human, the human condition, even in, its, even in its pristine beauty. Here she is. She's a picture of innocence. She's a picture of purity. She's a picture of availability, of the best in humanity. And even here, we see that great contrast drawn by the angel's answer in verse 35, where the Holy Spirit's impartation, the Holy Spirit's indwelling, we might even call it, in a certain manner of speaking, the invasion of God. It's his intrusion into the human experience. And here's how it's described in that answer of the angel in verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And Mary's response in verse 38 gives us also, as we will take away today, this call and this opportunity to do exactly as she did. Though her experience is an unrepeatable miracle, obviously, there are wonderful applications in our life of standing on that point of contrast between God's promise and our experience and saying like Mary did, behold, in verse 38, behold, the maid servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Friends, the very best thing that could happen for us in this sanctuary today would be that we go away today saying of God's word in grace, saying of God's gift in Christ, saying of the glory of his incarnate presence given to us, would be for us to go and say, Lord, I can't grasp it with my brain, 
but I see the magnitude of how you prepared the world. I see the glory of your total giving of the sacrificial death and atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross, of his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascended glory. And I say, as Mary herself said, even before she had the natural maternal signs of pregnancy, she said, be it unto me according to your word. She took God at his word, and her response was, take me, Lord, where you want to take me. Well, I think that experience in Mary's life then helps us, if you would back up into that Isaiah 9 chapter, I'd like to do something for a few moments that I hope would help anyone who is looking at these incredibly, I, I just can't think of a better way to describe verse 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9 than absolutely incandescent, luminous lights from God in a dark world, because possibly these two verses, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, may be among the most best known and best loved. There are many Christmas decorations, as they should be, wonderful and, and timeless um, truth that nourishes our soul. But when you read it in your own Bible, have you not noticed that as you open the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah, you may find yourself a little perplexed on how does this wonderful promise, we'll read in a moment, the giving of the Son, how does it relate to what goes before it in those first five verses? And, and we're not going to take too long, but I want to give you a frame to think about it, because when you're reading this, we might track back a bit in our thinking to two weeks ago. We looked at chapter 7 and 8 briefly, and the overall setting there was a, a, a global invasion, a potential um, invasion of of the little tiny nation of Judah and a, a jostling for power between three kings and then the prophetic word came to this king Ahaz to tell him if you'll trust God, even though Ahaz at this point was not a model leader, just like the leaders that are often elected in our societies are not model leaders, and there's some lessons in that too to see that God would reach into this political leader with all of his flaws and all of his uh, uh, mixed motives, and God would say in chapter 7, I'm giving you, in essence, these are my words, I'm giving you Ahaz an opportunity to believe my promise. You might say God was giving Ahaz an opportunity to do what we just saw Mary did. When she said, again, before any maternal signs of pregnancy, she was being told she was about to become the mother of the Lord. So she had no physiological indications yet that she was going to be pregnant. And, and yet she is stunned by this truth and says to the Lord, after the initial awe literally overwhelmed her in the presence of that angel, she says to the Lord, be it unto me. Oh, let's say these words together according to thy word. Would you say that? According to thy word. Let it be to me. Once again, according to thy word word. And if we go away today with that ringing in our hearts and our ears, we'll be ready for many ways. The Holy Spirit will want to bring fresh oxygen of grace into a world around us that is often claustrophobic with self-satisfaction and self-righteousness. God's grace can pierce those places of darkness. So first back up to that first verse and notice in Isaiah chapter 9 that this passage opens with this declaration of a gloom. I know Justin mentioned earlier in his prayer that, that there can even be a gloom that uh, many people experience at this time of year, and we know that's true, don't we? That uh, in spite of the joyous news of Advent, there are many, in fact, often heightened emotions of disillusionment and sadness and loneliness and grief and hurt at a time like this because we face the instinctive contradiction between the great joy of that angelic choir we heard about with the angel's candle. Today is born to you in the city of David, the Savior, who is the Messiah, 
the Lord. And as joyous as that is, the human condition for many walking in their daily experience feels so vastly different than what their expectation was of what they would feel even in their believing in God. And those contradictions can create a great gap of gloom. So it's striking that that's one of the themes there in that very first verse of Isaiah 9. I'm reading from the New King James Bible today in this section. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Very quickly within that verse, there were two phases of a gloomy, disastrous crisis that was coming to the very people of that time. And, and basically it was that in the middle of the 8th century, the people of Israel, that northern kingdom, were taken over by the Assyrian army. And through a miracle, God worked to show them his sparkling grace available to them, Judah was spared. But then, approximately 135 years later, so a whole, maybe you might say three whole generations, or almost four, transpired before Judah then finally went into captivity by a different invading army, the Babylonians. And in between those, uh, Isaiah had come as the prophetic voice to say, it can be different for you. Put it in the present context. There are many people worried about our country and for so many reasons. The troubles, the heartache, the, the political crisis, the, the failure of leadership, it's everywhere, the struggles. And a child of God has got a choice to make in, their, in the living in the political environment of their country. And that is to say, God's grace and promise in Christ Jesus makes me a carrier of light and truth, and hope, and peace, and justice, regardless of what the political situation is. In fact, you might say, with your Bible open in Isaiah chapter 9, you might say today that the promise of Advent, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his birth in Bethlehem, was designed by God and shown in this chapter to be the centerpiece of an eternal plan that put all the most powerful political players of his time off into the wings, fading into the background because the center of attention of God was on the coming birth of his son. And of course, if, that, if we see it that way, then we know that in the Gospel of Matthew, when King Herod heard the news, that Magi had come from the east and were seeking for this one, the promised one who had been born. The one who fulfills Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And these Magi had come looking for the son, looking for the child. And again, rattled the cage of a scheming political operator who conceived of himself as the true center of attention. And in his jealous rage, we know how that political operator acted. And the contrast could not be more clear that in, in, in Isaiah's time, a whole different set of political actors. In the birth of Jesus, in Bethlehem, a different set of political actors. In the church of 2021, a different set of political actors on the stage of history, but the promise of God in sending his son is that you can know his powerful light breaks through and pierces the darkness. So that gloom that's spoken of in Isaiah 9 is contrasted in chapter 2, uh, in verse 2 of chapter 9, with this famous word that we read three weeks ago, the pray for the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Think about what this really means in the context then. 
that across the vast expanse of time, it's like the incarnation of Emmanuel, God with us, shines. And it shines in December of 2021. The living Jesus, the living Christ. Now you might say, well, that sounds all, that sounds great. How, how, how can that possibly be true? And how can that possibly affect me now? And one of the ways we know is because that 6th and 7th verse focuses on his name. And, and, and the first thing we see if you look at that 6th and 7th verse is, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Say that with me. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So before we look at those names, think of the magnitude of the name itself. Hebrews chapter 1, 3 says that God had planned and told us in advance through the prophets that, that his plan and grace would bring be to bring his son in person. So Hebrews 1 tells us that after Christ had provided purification for sin in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Hebrews 1.3 says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in synchronized expression in Hebrews showing us that we have eternal hope because of his completely overwhelming power and authority at the right hand of God. And because of that, verse 3 of Hebrews 1 says that God has given to him a more excellent name. That this excellent name is the name above all names. And again, if you look at it in your Bible in verse 6, you see the names described, not names that we might say are literal names, but attributes. They are names given to show us attributes of who he is. And the attributes magnify the eternal glory of the name that is above all names. In a, in a wondrous way, we can draw from this that God is, is addressing in the deepest struggles of the human heart in chapter 9, a fact that is as real today as it was in the days of Isaiah. And the best way to understand it is if you go back to verse 4 and 5, if you're reading it in your own Bible, you might say these cataclysmic verses in verse 4 and 5 are dramatic contrast against the wonderful hope that comes through his name and the attributes of his name, the wonderful counselor. So we might think about what does it mean? Well, two things to take away uh, quickly that I think can help frame it. First is that in verse 3, like it is in the second chapter of Isaiah, it is a telescopic lens on global crisis. It is as if when you read Isaiah chapter 9, it's as if there is a vast view of the expanse of history that is relevant to any generation and shows us why we needed the Savior whose name is above every name. That is, in the global crisis that breaks out in different ways in every generation, in our generation it's been global terrorism, and there's so many aspects of it in this present tense that we could take much more time than we have to think about the heartache and the trouble that is wrecking many parts of this planet today. The hardship and the suffering of the people of Afghanistan would just be one of a, a thousand examples we could use today. And, and, and so the child of God may at times feel overwhelmed by the bad news, and yet you come back to Isaiah chapter 9 and you realize, now wait a minute, God was speaking this very thing in the prophesying of the birth of Jesus so that we would know that over against the global crisis that God had a plan. Now, verse 3 says about 
Israel's future. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased their joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. This is looking far into the future to the day of ultimately the deliverance of these very people that Isaiah is prophesying to. That a day will come, there will be an indescribable joy of harvest among the people that he's chosen. And yet, in between, is global crisis after global crisis. You see verse 4 describing, excuse me, uh, yeah, verse 4 is describing three symbols of oppressive rulers and regimes. Now, I think of it like this. Verse 4 is telling us, in a very simple way, that you name the year, you name the decade, you name the era of human experience, and we can find for you tyrannical rulers who are trying to oppress the poor, who are trying to crush the needy, who have no regard for the dignity of the human soul created in the image of God. So whether it is the suffering of oppressed peoples in North Korea today, the brutal killing of, of innocents in Nigeria by terrorists marading bands of, of, um, of um, ideological warriors, whether it's the suffering of the people in Afghanistan today because of the abandonment of their people in a reckless and, and um, uh, very sad display of broken promises, or a hundred and one other examples around the globe, oppression symbolized by the yoke upon the neck, the rod, and the whip. These are symbols, the staff of the oppressor and the rod. So here is this picture that God drew from the history of very people Isaiah was speaking to, and he, he compares it to the day that God is going to deliver you as a people. Now, we don't have time to go into all of that, of course, but one of the great conclusions of it is in Romans eleven twenty five, when God speaks of a day when all Israel will be saved. There is this future promise for the natural people of Israel that is used as a set piece to show us why the world needs the incomparable, excellent name of the Redeemer towering over all the wreckage of time. And so I think of it like this. I kind of put them together in kind of a timeless span. What you have in verse 4 and 5 is a timeless span across the centuries and across cultures in which the yoke of oppression the bar that is across their shoulders of the oppressed and the rod of tyrannical rule, you can find it in this very moment in points of conflict around the globe as much as you could find it in the days of Isaiah. So we might say like this, this is a fact of the human condition. So how does the child of God, watching his or her news and feeling so grieved about the horrific heartache that we see in the world around us, how does the child of God deal with this? Well, the prophet Isaiah says, here's how you deal with it. You need to, to rejoice today first in the throne of the invincible ruler. Now remember, we've already read, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And this giving of God's son is in fulfillment of ancient promises. And these go back over 800 years before Isaiah was speaking. And that is that God had said to King David about another prophetic future event, God would take the natural circumstances of his time, in this case the coronation of Solomon to be David's successor, and he would give promises that applied to Solomon. And yet in the midst of those promises, there would be an there would be the rarefied air of the prophetic voice pointing to the Messiah who alone could actually fulfill the promise. And this is a factor that is so powerful to understand when the Magi came from the east looking for the Christ child. They too had been 
beneficiaries of what God promises us. That is, this throne that was promised by God to King David is far larger than even David understood. Far more magnificent than Solomon could have guessed. In fact, Jesus explained it that way in Matthew chapter 10 when he said, the Queen of Sheba came many, many miles to see the glory of Solomon, but a greater than Solomon is he. That is, Jesus, Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever, the preexistent king, the eternal God, had prepared a place where there would be a throne, and everyone who puts their trust in him can find true grace and deliverance and hope. Why? Because he came to fulfill these promises. Read them with me from the screen. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Psalmist David converted that great promise into a messianic prayer in Psalm 89, and let's read this part, where David said it like this, The heavens are yours, the earth is also yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. And so, what is that promise? When will that throne emerge? Well, that throne emerges in the birth of a baby. That throne emerges in the fulfillment of God's promise that to you, Bethlehem, tiny village among the clans of Judah, will come the ruler who has existed eternally before, and he will be there for you. Isaiah's wording tells us two things about this birth that we celebrate in Bethlehem. One is that unto us a child is born. It's a natural origin. He is born of a human virgin. He has a natural mother. He has a mother who carries a pregnancy in the full natural way that every woman carries her babies. Because God had chosen her for the humanity that would wrap around eternal deity in the incarnation so that eternally from this point on, the God-man is fully human, fully God, never ceasing to be the God-man. And yet before the angel came to Mary, the human, the humanity of Jesus didn't exist. He entered into the world to become human. John, their gospel writer, put it in different words, that he came to his own, his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God who would be born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, but born of God. For the eternal word, eternal deity, became human and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. This was actually the centerpiece of the, of the spectacle created by Pontius Pilate when he was presented with the cries of the Jews to try to kill Jesus. And another political operator here, operating on the stage of history, Pontius Pilate, another flawed and scheming politician, but one who, who was presented with a dilemma of, of great magnitude. Will I, will I agree to the cry of the Jews? Or will I follow my conscience, which tells me this is far more than an innocent man? No one ever spoke like this man. And when he asked Jesus, where's your kingdom? Here's what Jesus said. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Why? Well, because Isaiah 9, 6 put it like this. The government will be upon his shoulder. <laughs> it's interesting that the singular is used there, shoulder. We often hear it quoted as the shoulders, but the, the, the use of the singular shoulder there was an expression in, the times of the, in, in those times in which oftentimes a monarch would be coronated for their rule with a ceremony that included the placing 
of, of a scepter on the shoulder that indicated the rule and responsibility for the entire domain is now upon your shoulder. We use an expression, an American colloquial expression, of putting my shoulder to the wheel, putting my shoulder to the work. And it is an essentially saying, as I, I love the way that, um, that um, Dr. Barnhouse put this some decades ago when he said that the Bible speaks of Jesus carrying the lambs in his arm and then putting them around his shoulder to carry them home. And when we join this together with his prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 10, that he shall stand and rule as a shepherd, we have the joining of these royal titles with the responsibility of a caring shepherd, and Isaiah fuses these into the attributes of his name. Attributes that show the absolute splendor of his name. When Jesus is praying to the Father in John 17, describing the glory that will be imparted to those who would believe in him, he said to God the Father in that high priestly prayer, O oh, Father, glorify me with the glory that we had existing eternally. For this is life eternal, what? That they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Isaiah, it's like in Isaiah 9, 6, it's like the prophetic voice has spanned the centuries and the cultures and seen the heartache and the oppression and the tyranny of aching, hurting people around the globe. And as if the prophetic telescopes zeroes in on America today to say still there are so many, there are so many parts of this globe where oppression and heartache reign. And yet God has said, I'm sending to you the wonderful counselor. I'm sending to you the, the one for whom there are no human words to describe the wondrous power of his incarnation. The expression in the Hebrew puts together those two words with wonderful being a modifier of counselor. And we often think of them as separate names. And that's, that's good too because we could say his name is wonderful as the father of, of Samson who when God promised the, uh, Manoah, the father of Samson, that his wife was going to conceive though she had been barren for so many years and that the son they would be given would have a, a miraculous purpose from God. And Manoah said, oh, please, let me go and prepare a meal for you. Let's come into the home. We want to we celebrate this wonderful news that we can barely understand. And the angel of the Lord, a, a preexistent appearance of the Lord himself, said, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to eat with you, Manoah. I'm just bringing you this news that you're to raise the sun in a certain way. And then Manoah said, well, what is your name? What is your name? And he said, I'm not going to re reveal my name because it's wonderful. Well, this, this wonderful name reminds us that there are so many things in your walk with God that are far more wonderful than we can possibly put into words. Job said it like this, that when I see what God has now made known, though I felt so ignorant before, I realize that I was speaking out of my ignorance, and now I know God had in store for me things that are too wonderful for me. David recorded in Psalm 139 about the baby in the womb. That every baby in the womb, every pregnancy, every single pregnancy on planet earth, there is a little human being being shaped. And Psalm 139 verse 13 says that each of these little babies are being formed wonderfully, magnificently by the creative splendor of God. Therefore, a follower of Jesus speaks with gratitude and honor to the dignity and eternal value of every individual baby. Why? Because of the wonderful counselor who himself chose from all eternity to begin his sojourn in planet Earth as an embryo 
becoming a little fetus, becoming a little baby in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And then we can say, as Isaiah 28, 29 is speaking of common things that God makes known to us, and we can say, this also comes from the Lord, who is wonderful in counsel. Well, I can't think of a better way to conclude today than to realize that when you go out into your day, we can echo what the psalmist said in reflecting on all the wonderful things about the gift of God. And I'd like to ask you to stand and say it with me because this is the way we can do what Mary did. We can actually go into our world today and say, I feel that contradiction at times. I feel that the joy that I know of contradicts the trouble and the heartache and the hurt that often, often seems to inflict the lives of people. So what will I do? <laughs> I will rejoice in the glory of his name. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the father of eternity, the prince of peace. The increase of his rule is expanding now, even as he promised. And this psalm is a great way to declare it together. Would you say it with me together now? Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Repeat that again. Who alone does marvelous deeds. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. This song that I asked Justin to lead us in today is one of those that actually incorporates these, the very promise we've read, the increase of his government. Lord, take up your holy throne deep within my heart. The song has three verses. We'll take a few more minutes to sing them because there's only one little change in the three verses. Lord, take up your holy throne deep within my heart and let the increase of your government know no end for you're worthy, Lord, to reign. So the first verse is my heart. The second verse is this land. In that second verse, would you pray for America? This land. And the third verse is this earth. So, Lord, take up your holy throne deep within my heart. Take up your holy throne across this land. Take up your holy throne. Let's sing it together. Amen. Lord, take up your holy throne deep within my heart.